and welcome to the BNP Paribas Asset Management Talking Heads podcast. Every week, Talking Heads will bring you in-depth insights and analysis on the topics that really matter to investors. In this episode, we'll be discussing absolute return fixed income strategies. I'm Daniel Morris, Chief Market Strategist, and I'm joined today by Abhijit Corday, Portfolio Manager of Absolute Return. Welcome, Abhijit, and thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Pleasure to be here. I want to say, Abhijit, in the, in the good old days, life for a fixed income portfolio manager was maybe not easy, but shall we say easier than it is today? You were used to volatility and equities, but fixed income, interest rates, they move up, down a little bit, but not so difficult. Clearly, that's not been the case, I guess, since the pandemic. Surprisingly, or certainly unusually, and at many times we've had fixed income volatility actually higher than equity volatility. And just think about what happened last year. You know, at one point we had 10-year treasury yields below 4%. Next thing we know, we're above 5 Jamie Dimon telling, is telling us it's going to go to 7%. And the next thing we know, we're below 4 again. So I can imagine it's been a bit of a challenge, hopefully an exciting one. At the same time, of course, when we ask ourselves a question why perhaps it's been so challenging, not only in terms of investment, but for economists, right, trying to anticipate what's going to happen with growth, what's going to happen with inflation. And I think we all appreciate and acknowledge that we honestly have been living in unprecedented times. Thankfully, never had global pandemics, global lockdowns, throw in a couple trillion or many trillions of quantitative easing, some fiscal stimulus, and there you go. So perhaps our economic model's not quite adept. At, at evaluating this situation. But in all of this, again, you're managing an absolute return portfolio. So if I understand correctly, you're kind of looking for the best ideas wherever you can find them within the fixed income universe. But even then, I think you still have to have, you know, some view uh, on how you think the macroeconomic environment is going to evolve. So let, let's start with that. What are you thinking about on the current macroeconomic environment? And what are some of the key factors that might dominate how it changes in the months and quarters ahead? Yeah, I mean, challenging is the right word and fun at the same time. But for once, at least since I've started working in this market, volatility in the rates market is the focal point for everyone. And that for once makes me happy, if I can say so. But I think you're right. I mean, Essentially, uh, the key challenge which we've been faced with since, I would say, the beginning of 21 is inflationary pressures have been on the rise. And that's a factor which most economic playbooks didn't really worry about, at least in developed markets, for a good decade and a half since the GFC or the Great Financial Crisis. And that sort of made us think a lot harder, deeper and also in different directions as to how we not only think about markets, but how we manage our funds and strategies. And, you know, the way I think about these things, when especially when things get so challenging, is to break them down into basics. So when I think about the whole macroeconomic equation, there are three variables we are trying to solve for. Inflation, growth, and how does the central bank react to the dynamics between growth and inflation? So let's kind of pick it up point-wise. First, inflation, and I start with inflation because that's been the hot topic for the last two years. As I said, before COVID, we really weren't worried about inflation because in developed markets, it was sort of trending around the range where central banks were comfortable with. But post-COVID, what we had was it all 
it's hard to pinpoint where it kick started from but we had supply chain issues end of 2020 and you compound that with a massive savings cushion that had been built up in domestic households especially in the US because we had a fairly loose fiscal policy so what that meant was consumers were willing to spend more so both the demand and supply side story pointed towards inflation to rise and it did rise initially people had a thesis that it would not be as sticky as it turned out to be and what that forced central banks you know the likes of fed us fed to do is tighten their monetary policy aggressively so and to be fair to what the fed had sort of telegraphed us through the hiking journey we have started seeing some signals of inflation moderating especially in the last 3 or 4 months where both the top level inflation as well as certain other leading indicators are pointing towards an inflation which is getting back to its target range however it's still not there Now let's look at the other factor which is growth. I think this is where it gets very interesting because the way central banks look at impacting inflation through monetary policy is by reducing demand or growth. And what we have seen thus far specifically in the US more than others is demand or growth has remained rather resilient. At this point so inflation is showing some signs of moderation, growth still remains robust. and we know that fed has done a fair amount of tightening in the last year and a half and markets especially after the recent fed meeting in december have actually interpreted that fed meeting as fairly dovish thinking that markets are going to start cutting their rates pretty soon to the extent that almost six rate cuts have been priced before the end of this year so in my view the best way you can think about the macro picture is by doing some sort of a scenario analysis because we know for sure that there is not going to be one particular state of affairs that will play for i mean forget the entire year but even for one quarter and at top level those three scenarios are first one is what the fed has been aspiring to so inflation continues on its downward trajectory it doesn't completely drop off it remains sort of steadily coming down and growth remains okay so not a recessionary environment in some senses soft landing or goldilocks for the markets the second scenario is where inflation actually remains stickier than what market is expecting it to because growth remains resilient so spending still remains okay and that pushes inflation to not or that limits inflation from coming down and the third scenario is the tail risk scenario where the economy just falls into a deep recession where the fed actually then need to come to rescue and cut rates much more than what's been priced in but those cuts would take the fed rate much below the neutral and that would be a recessionary cut so it helps us to think about these three scenarios because then you can start assigning probabilities and then thinking about how different asset classes within our investable universe might behave for a given scenario what i would like to caveat at this point is these scenarios are in no particular order of chronology or probability neither is it going to be a clear evolution from one scenario to other if the last two years are any guide it's going to be very much a mishmash of these scenarios on a very short term or tactical basis and this is where our sort of hat as a market observer comes in where we need to identify for the next maybe a month a quarter what sort of probabilities we can assign to each of these scenarios 
you talk about fixed income volatility, I mentioned equity volatility. We can almost say there's kind of scenario volatility, as you point out. We seem to go from one or the other, these three scenarios, sometimes quite or surprisingly quickly. And as you point out, that's not likely or probably not going to change in the quarters ahead. So you've helped us now with kind of the framework you have to think about what's happening in the economy and then, you know, as importantly, how the central banks might react to that. How then do you translate that into your views on the markets? I mean, you've got to invest in something at the end of this. So for the markets that you invest in, how does this inform that view? Yeah. So, and, you know, this is where the framework essentially is the starting point, because let's again sort of take it case by case. So the first case I mentioned was the, the, the Goldilocks, the Fed aspiration where inflation trends continues trending downwards, growth remains okay. Now, one thing which has changed in the last couple of years, apart from the heightened volatility in interest rate markets, is the correlation between asset classes. So traditionally, riskier assets like equities and credits would have a negative correlation with interest rates or risk-free assets. That's changed because what's happened is as volatility in interest rates has gone up, that's driven volatility in credit investments in equities. So what we are looking for is in each of these three scenarios, how is the volatility in interest rates going to function or evolve? And how are these correlations going to change? Because from an asset allocation perspective, that's an important aspect to consider. So in the scenario of Goldilocks or the Fed aspiration scenario, one would imagine that if inflation is coming down, volatility in interest rates might not drop off the cliff, but it should evolve lower, have a lower trend. Interest rates on an absolute level should continue down. If they would go further than what's currently priced in is a matter of debate. But in this context, if growth remains resilient, you would expect riskier investments like or growth investments like equities and credit spreads to perform well. And what I mean by that is credit spreads to compress. And by that, the total return on those investments will be positive as well. So that's one. And that's a scenario where the correlation still remains positive, but positive in a favorable way, where rally or positive performance in interest rates translates into positive performance in riskier assets as well. The second scenario where because the growth remains resilient, that puts a floor on how further inflation can continue downwards. So inflation remains stickier. Now, that's a scenario where you would have to worry about the current market pricing because the market is looking at six rate cuts, expecting inflation to continue to go down. And if that doesn't happen, you could have a knee-jerk reaction from market participants where they start pricing out the rate cuts which have been priced in. So that in the simplest form would mean a negative signal for holding interest rate risk because yields will widen. And that also means that in this scenario, the correlation will continue to be positive between interest rates and riskier assets. And that will result in a sell-off in those growth assets. However, because growth remains okay in this scenario, there could be a potential gap or potential floor on how further risk assets can sell off. So you could imagine a sort of range-bound sell-off in risk assets driven by volatility or continued volatility in interest rates. And the third scenario is probably the one which, in my mind, you would assign a lower probability, but by definition, it's a tail risk scenario. So the one you need to worry about most, especially from a portfolio construction perspective, is that one of the factors I mentioned was corporate margins which have remained resilient. Now, if those corporate margins start coming under pressure, 
the first port of call most corporates resolve to or they sort of start reducing their cost base and the way they prefer doing it is by reducing their labor force and you could very well imagine fed would almost need to come to a rescue wherein they would cut much more than what's priced in and the rates would go below what the current neutral rates are and that's a scenario where interest rate investments should perform well because rates have been cut but the growth assets will not do so well because it's a recessionary scenario so the correlation becomes negative which is the historical norm but it would be a scenario wherein you would need to be very careful about how you allocate to your riskier part of investment portfolio very good so we we've had a framework uh we've explored a bit kind of what the implications are depending on the scenarios that you laid out but of course at the end of all of this you've got to invest in things so maybe take us one step further and talk about you know given these different scenarios the different alternatives how does that end up realized in the trading strategies that you guys are looking at today this is the part of the job which is probably the most trickiest because as we discussed it's quite nice to have a framework on macro scenarios and you know how things might evolve and assign probabilities but in reality markets don't really function in a very uh, I would hate to say but they don't function in a very logical or a, in a singular line so i think as a portfolio manager as someone who has to have a careful eye on the risk of the portfolio from a capital preservation perspective we are always looking for opportunities where we can build in asymmetry in the portfolio profile and now what i mean by that is when i take a certain position i have a very careful handle on what my maximum potential profit from that trade is versus how much can i lose and if that ratio is favorably skewed towards the profit side then that's an asymmetric trade in my mind and that's our primary focus from an absolute return perspective to give you some examples of some of the themes we feel fairly confident about or we feel that they have uh, a fair amount of support is one of them is steepness in dm or developed market interest rate curves now what i mean by steepness is the longer dated bonds are expected to underperform the shorter dated bonds and the good thing about that trade is it has a variety of factors that support it it works in an environment where even if inflation remains stickier if growth is okay you will still get the longer end selling off more than the short end so that trade works if you have a scenario where everything just moves sideways you would just have the normalization of an inverted curve so the valuations or the entry point for that trade are pretty attractive even today so there's a lot of fundamental support and inherently what you're doing when you're doing a curve trade is you're doing a relative value trade so you're not taking an outright overweight or underweight call on any directional basis but you are just trying to explore the relative dislocations between two points on the same curve so your risks are limited your downside risks are limited whereas you stand to capture a lot of upside so that kind of goes in line with our thinking about asymmetry in risk return profiles another opportunity in in a similar way in which jumps up both from a fundamental and a valuation perspective is looking at the monetary policy divergences between some of the developed markets and in Japan 
So if you think about the economic scenario in line with what I told or said about the US, the UK market also experienced a bout of inflation and the Bank of England responded by tightening their monetary policy. And now we are almost seeing a phase where market participants are expecting Bank of England to start cutting their rates at some point this year. Compared to that, if you look in Japan, they were almost going through an opposite version of this problem where inflation or getting inflation high enough was a problem for them until the last few months. And in probably the last few months, last few quarters, what we have seen is some pickup in inflation. And the Bank of Japan has alluded to sort of tilting their policy stance towards a more hawkish policy. And what that means for interest rates domestically in Japan is you would expect yields to rise. So now we have a classic case over here where there is one market, UK, where you expect rates to fall because the central bank is minded to cut rates to prevent a recession from a tighter monetary policy. On the other hand, you have Japan where they still want to raise rates, which is diametrically opposite to what's happening in other developed markets. And that's a case where you have a relative policy difference, which is a strong fundamental support. The positioning over there is also tilted in favor of having that trade. And the way we have implemented that trade is having long positions in UK government bonds or gills versus short positions in Japanese government bonds. Well, Abhijit, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks, Daniel. It was a pleasure being here. That's it for this week's episode of Talking Heads. If you would like more information, please reach out to your BNP Paribas Asset Management contact or check out Viewpoint, our website for investment insights at viewpoint.bnpparibas-am.com. Just before we go, I'd like to mention that Talking Heads is available on YouTube. Visit youtube.com slash bnppam slash playlist and tap or click on Talking Heads. You've been listening to the BNP Paribas Asset Management Talking Heads podcast with me, Daniel Morris, and Abhijit Korde. Please do join me next week. Until then, take care. This presentation includes a discussion on current market events and is not intended as investment advice or an offer of products or services by BNP Paribas Asset Management. Please keep in mind that the information and analysis in this presentation is only current as of the publication date.